Good morning, church. It's good to see your faces again. It's been several weeks since I've been able to be up here and so thankful for Josh and Tyson for leading us so well in our preaching ministry these last several weeks has got some much needed rest and time away and uh, even had some time with our students last week for the winter retreat and appreciate your prayers, especially in light of all the last second adjustments that we had to endure for our team. Uh, we ended up hosting that here at the church and it really was a sweet time together. Um, good news is we're about a week removed from that and the smell of the 30-some boys who are sleeping in this room I think has mostly dissipated and so um, if you were in pain last week that would probably have been why. So now I am thankful to, to be back with you this morning as we have the uh, privilege and the opportunity to open God's Word together. So if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. And as you do so, if you need a Bible, we have two stellar-looking men here, Rich and Tim. We're going to give them names today, Rich and Tim. Uh, they'll make sure you get a Bible uh, this morning, so just put your hand up in the air and they'll uh, pass you uh, one so that you can follow along with us today. Because today we are going to venture into a new teaching series, something that's going to be a little bit shorter and a bit different in nature than what we typically do around here when we dive into a study of a, of a biblical book together. Uh, over the next two months, we are actually going to do a topical deep dive into the subject and nature of church membership and what the New Testament has to say about our commitment to the local assembly of believers. As you know, our focus these past few years as a church has been on the, the themes of building up the body and, and strengthening the body, speaking of the, the body of Christ, the church. And as leaders, we've discussed ways that we can practically help our people with this. And there's a lot of different things we've done over the years, but one of the burdens that our elders have is the desire to see our church grow in our understanding of and practice of church membership, formal church membership, when uh, believers in Jesus uh, commit themselves to a particular local church family uh, for the purposes of worship and service and all the things that we're going to talk about and so we sought uh, as a leadership to study and pull together the New Testament teachings on the church, the, the biblical one another's, and really even just the reasonable expectations that are placed on believers in Jesus Christ. And the fruit of that effort and that study as a team was a condensed written statement on the relational commitments that we desire for our people here at Newcastle. In fact, you might have already seen or grabbed one on your way in, but in the sermon manuscript spot, there is a, a copy of this single-page uh, written statement that our elders have formulated over really the last couple of years to better understand what this idea of commitment in the local church looks like. In fact, if you have been in our membership class over the past year, you've probably seen this and have been taught through this document as well, and my hope is that you have been greatly blessed by it, seeing that this is a church that desires for its people to really be invested, committed to one another. 
And so as we started to consider these final months that we have in this strengthening the body campaign, we came to see the immense value in teaching and walking through this, not just with those who are pursuing membership at our church, but for those who are indeed even already members of this church. Uh, we see exactly just an immense value in all our people understanding what it is that we do as a church, why we're here and what we exist for. And so that's exactly what we're going to do together over these next few months. We are going to walk through the eight membership commitments that our elders have attempted to summarize based on these New Testament teachings. Now, as you think about the New Testament, you think all that has to be said about the church and believers in Christ, there's a uh, reason to believe that we could have far more than eight, and there's in many ways you could say we could summarize it in maybe even less than eight, but this is our frail and meager attempt to say, as a church body, this is what we desire for our people that we believe is in line with God's good plan for his church. And it's my hope that this document uh, will strengthen us as a church family and what this type of commitment looks like for our people. Now, admittedly, this series will be a little bit different uh, than normal as we will take a, a more topical approach over these next two months. But still, rest assured, our focus remains centered on God's word and what God has to say about these ideas. And as such, we're going to begin and we're going to still ground ourselves in the study of God's word, which, I, which is why I want us to begin this morning by reading and looking at God's plan for the church in Acts chapter 2. So that's where we're going to read from this morning. I'm going to invite you, if you're able, to stand in honor of the public reading of God's Word as we read this morning from Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 36, which, by the way, uh, we're catapulting into a very important uh, point in this chapter where Peter is giving essentially the first sermon at the day of Pentecost where all these Jewish followers from all over the, the known world here are gathered together to worship and they have been brought to this moment where the Holy Spirit has fallen on the, the apostles and Peter in the power of the Spirit is now proclaiming the message of salvation through Jesus Christ alone and this is the crux, this is the climax of that sermon where Peter says in verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. 
And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and to the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is God's word for us to meditate on this morning. You can be seated and we're going to ask now for the Lord's blessing on our study together. Would you do that with me? Our dear and precious Lord, we do now come to you asking for your amazing grace as we seek to unpack your word and to better uh, come to see and appreciate uh, the design, the plan that you have for your people in the church. Uh, this is a marvelous subject and one that is worthy of our full consideration this morning. And so would ask for your, your grace on us, give us humble hearts, to receive this in the spirit that is intended and help us, Lord, to walk in devotion to one another and to this church family. Lord, not just for our own sake, not just for our own spiritual joy, but ultimately for the glory of your name. Would you be pleased to do that today, we ask. Amen. Well, I think it's safe to say that the word commitment has fallen on tough times in our day and age. Uh, you can easily see this in all spheres of life in many ways. You look at the home and families. You look at the rates of divorce in our culture, the number of people who have opted to just forego marriage altogether and just choose to live together because it's just easier without all the strings attached and the commitments involved. If you were to look at the college sports landscape right now, it's a little bit of a joke one year, a player can say that they're playing for this particular school and they have their commitment only to decide, you know, next year, it's just, I'm just going to go somewhere else and jump around three, four, five times with no level of deep investment in their teammates. You know, when I came to Newcastle eight years ago, I learned that Commitment is a hard thing to find amongst teenagers, and I mean that in the most generous of ways. You try to get teenagers to commit to an event, you're going to get two yeses, three noes, and 17 maybes. It's a really hard thing to know what to do with, right? After all, you've got to keep your options open. After all, something might come along that's a better opportunity, so you don't want to tie yourself down with too much commitments. But perhaps no place is this seen more than with the church. 
After all, how often do we see the church become some type of dating game or a spiritual buffet meant to satisfy our own personal likings? Uh, This church has really great teaching, but this church, man, it's got a really killer music time. This church has an awesome opportunity for my kids. We pick and choose to our own satisfaction and our likings. Commitment to a local church can become an endless carousel that never seems to fully satisfy But is it meant to be that way? Is that really how it should be? Now, before I go any further, I want to be very clear about a couple of things here. There can be, and there certainly are, good reasons why someone may leave a local church. It's not to say that they are tied down to that forever. There are possibly good and very right and godly reasons to move on. Uh, Likewise, there are also good opportunities for churches to partner together in gospel ministry. It's not as if we are always in competition with other churches over people and numbers. That's not at all the case. The concern of our day and age is when the church becomes filled with more consumers than it does committers. A consumer mindset says that the church is for my primary benefit. It's more of a a one-way partnership in terms of what I or my family gets out of it. A mindset that says I will be present but not too involved. I want to keep my options open for the future. But such a mindset does nothing to strengthen the church. In fact, I would argue it only weakens how the church is meant to operate. You see, the church, the church is the bride of Christ. And I would certainly hope that we would rejoice this morning that Jesus does not have some sort of flaky commitment to us. Am I right? No, he's deeply devoted deeply invested in us. God has designed then his redeemed community to operate in this way in close love and proximity to one another, not with some hands-off whenever it is convenient for me perspective. And so if we would remember today that the church is indeed the blood-bought bride of Christ, then I believe that we would all come to the conviction found in our main point this morning that the church of Christ is strengthened when his followers are formally committed to a local assembly of believers. It's a mouthful, I understand, but let me say that again to you. That Jesus' church is actually strengthened When those who have been brought into his saved community, his followers, commit themselves to a particular local body of other believers where they might worship and fellowship and serve together. 
Now, right away, our main point calls for a couple important qualifiers. The first is that there is an important distinction to make between the universal church and the local church. And all I mean by that is when we talk about the universal church, we're talking about anybody who is a Christian, a believer anywhere over the world. When you are brought into a saving relationship with Jesus, you are part of the larger redeemed community of those who share that faith with you anywhere in the world. But there is a local sense of the church in the sense that there are local assemblies of believers, like what we have here at Newcastle Bible Church. We see this in the New Testament. You have the church in Thessalonica. You have the church in Ephesus. You have the church in Colossae, the church in Rome, the church in Jerusalem. These are local assemblies of believers that are committed to one another. The second thing we need to see with this main point is that the church by nature is a people, not a building. And I know that should go without saying, but yet we do have to say it a lot of times. The New Testament word for church is ecclesia, a, a gathering, an assembly of called out ones. And in particular, those who have been called out of darkness into light because of Jesus Christ. It's tied closely with another word we talk about regularly, that word koinonia, fellowship, a shared interest, a shared partnerships in something together. But finally, we need to understand too from this main point, it all hangs on that word committed. Meaning the people of that local assembly are deeply invested they are not non-committal, flakely, undecided, uninvested, or choosy. No, they are deeply committed and invested in that local assembly. But how is that true? How is all this true that Jesus' church is strengthened by our commitment to these local assemblies of believers? I want to show you that this morning. I want to give you three primary reasons why this is true as we build a foundation for our study over these next two months. Three reasons why formal membership is good. The first reason is this, is because formal church membership appropriately reflects God's earliest plan for the church. It appropriately reflects God's earliest plan for the church. Let's return to our passage in Acts 2 this morning because this text in many ways provides the basis for what you will find in the preamble, if you want to call it that, of our membership commitments document. Again, this is something you can find at the back of the room. I would encourage you to take one on your way out this morning to bring with you as we study through this. But the opening words of this document seek to reflect the very earliest pattern that we see here in the New Testament church. What is that pattern? Well, we see it unfold in our text this morning in three primary phases. The first phase is what we would call conversion. Conversion. We see this in verses 36 to 40. Uh, by the end of chapter 2, we see an audience here that's at a bit of a crossroads. They've been confronted with the reality and the gravity of their sin. They've been told about the saving plan of God given and afforded to them in Christ Jesus. Their hearts, in verse 37, are being 
pierced by this conviction and they cry out, what must we do? What do we do with this? And Peter's response to them is, repent. Believe. Turn from your old ways and submit yourselves to Jesus and you will be saved from your sins. We see here a people who are experiencing conversion and inherent in that word conversion is this idea of transformation to convert something, to take something and to make it completely new. It's the language Paul uses in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, where he says that if anyone is in Christ, meaning if anybody is united to Jesus by faith, they have become a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. So in Christ Jesus, in this conversion, when you are united to Jesus by faith, you become a brand new thing. So herein lies the very first reality of the church. The church is an assembly of men and women who have been completely made new by the saving power of Jesus. As verse 39 says, they are a people who God has called to himself. That is why the opening words of the preamble that we have in our membership commitments, if you don't have it in front of you, we're going to put it on the screen so you can see that opening paragraph to it. But it says this in the very opening lines, having been brought to faith in Jesus Christ. Stop right there. Having been brought to faith in Jesus Christ. This is foundation, the foundational first step in becoming part of the church at all. As we saw earlier, the church by nature is a community of called out ones. A redeemed community. They have been brought into a common state of being which Acts 2 tells us is saving faith in Jesus. That is the nature of the church. It is this redeemed community. But notice the second step in this is not just conversion, but by verse 41, we see it's identification. Identification. We could call this also addition or inclusion as seen in the practice of baptism. Verse 41, so those who received his word, in other words, those who had been converted were baptized and were added that day to the church. This public display of baptism, of, uh, of this ordination of water, was used as a visible display to identify visibly this redeemed community. It showed their union with Christ and his death, his burial, his resurrection. Uh, to say that they were baptized in his name was to say that they uh, identified themselves with this person, his name, his work, and all that is associated with him. As we've said it around here at Newcastle before, baptism is a very public way of saying, I identify with Team Jesus. That's what they were doing. 
And so we see here in Acts 2 that baptism was associated with one's public addition and inclusion into the church, which is why our preamble continues, having been brought to faith in Jesus and having been baptized upon that profession, because again, baptism is that public uh, display that says you are now a part of that redeemed community. It's a visible marker, in other words, of someone who has been added to the universal church. These are two foundational things that we see before anybody becomes a part of any local assembly. Is this conversion, this being brought to faith, and this public identification with that faith. But you notice in reading, it didn't stop there, did it? In fact, it's a shame in some ways that uh, we have a new heading over the next section here because verse 42 flows so neatly with everything that's happening here. We see at the end of verse 41, they were added that day about 3,000 souls and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. What's this third phase after conversion and after identification? It is devotion. That's devotion. Immediately after these people were baptized and added to the church, they devoted themselves to that particular assembly. In fact, this is where that concept of committed comes from. Uh, if you are looking for an appropriate synonym, not cinnamon, but synonym for committed, it is this very word here in Acts 2.42, of devoted. Devoted describes their commitment to this local assembly of believers. We see that this early church was devoted to one another in their gathering, in their instruction, in their praying, in their fellowship, in their worshiping, in their submission to the apostles' teaching. It is the type of devotion that we desire for our people here at Newcastle. This serving one another, caring for one another, giving for the sake of one another. They were wholeheartedly devoted to each other and to the cause of Christ there in that local community there in Jerusalem. Which is why then our preamble continues saying not just having been brought to faith in Jesus Christ and not just having been uh, baptized upon that profession, but now we willingly and joyfully commit to the membership and for the sake of obviously this local assembly, commit to this local assembly of Newcastle Bible Church. You see, this is important because while we recognize the union we share with all Christians universally, right, the, the beauty of that, we recognize that we are not able, hopefully you recognize this, we are not able to commit ourselves to brothers and sisters in Christ all around the world in the same way that we can do so in one particular local assembly. Am I right? As such, we commit ourselves to a specific local assembly of believers where we are able to carry out the principles and the practices that we see here in the New Testament. That is why many churches, including ours, have a formalized process that helps recognize and identify who is a member of that local assembly. 
That's why we do things like a membership process here. It's not because we're trying to be overburdensome, but we want to make sure there are clear markers in place to identify these things. In other words, let me put it another way, it is a recognized two-way commitment where the born-again believer commits to that local assembly and that local assembly, especially through the gate door of the leadership, commits to them. There is an understood two-way commitment that this is my church and you are a part of this local assembly and creates a clear marker for everyone that this local church is where I have entrusted my spiritual care and where I have committed to partner together in the gospel. But honestly, why? Why do that? Why is it that important? Why do we believe in the value of Christian community? Or if I could put it a little bit more bluntly this morning, do we really need one another? Couldn't we do the Christian life just as well, if not better, on our own than we could with other people? I believe that teaching the scripture would tell you the answer to that is no. That we do need each other. In fact, that's the second reason why formal church membership is so good because it readily embraces God's good design for relationships. God's good design for relationships. I want us to consider for a moment why it is that God designed relationships for our good. We're going to fly through this here. but There's a couple logical progressions I think we need to see in the scriptures. And it begins with this. As created image bearers, we are relational because the God who created us is relational. Have you ever thought about that? That if you are truly created in the image of God, that means that you are inherently, there is a, there is a built-in sensory that says that you yourself desire relationship because God himself is relational. Before anything was created, our God existed in perf perfect relationship with himself, Father, Son, and Spirit, dwelling together in perfect relational harmony. And in his infinite wisdom, he chose to create a people, not because he lacked any a relational void in himself, but because he wanted to magnify the very glory he already possessed, which leads us to our second reason, our second purpose in this, is that our created purpose as image bearers is to glorify God with our lives. Paul says in Colossians 1.16 that we were created by God and for God. He says in 1 Corinthians 10.31, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink or anything else, you do it all for the glory of God. In other words, our lives are not first and foremost about us. We're not existing to build a kingdom for ourselves as God's image bearers and created in his image. We are created to glorify him and to make much of him. And as such, 
We put these two concepts together that we are relational beings created in the image of God and we exist to glorify him, then naturally relationships provide us opportunities to glorify God together. In fact, I would say glorify God better together than we would on our own. And I think we see this even in the earliest chapters of the Bible. We see when Adam was created, what is the only time in those first two chapters that something is declared not good by God? That's when Adam was alone, right? He had no helper. He had no one to be with him. And so God created Eve. He created a companion to work and to serve alongside him. We see even in the institution of marriage that marriage, according to Ephesians 5, is meant to be a picture and a display of the gospel to the watching world. Now, that's not to say singleness does not provide its uh, blessings and its opportunities for how you can still glorify God in your extra time. But there is a, a sense in which this relationship that God has created is an opportunity for the gospel to be displayed in a beautiful way to the world. Our friendships then become an opportunity to glorify God together amongst people, not just having relationships for our own selfish purposes, but for the sake of making each other better for the purpose of glorifying God together. And ultimately, for the purpose of this series, we see the importance of this with the church. That God, in his wisdom, had a plan for his glory to be spread through a community of believers rather than just individual Christians doing their own thing. You see, God's plan for the increase of your joy and his glory is the Christian community known as the church. God did not just save you so that now you just do your own thing. If you got your coffee, your Bible, your time in the Word, you're good. That's not his design. And when you read through these relational commitments that we have put in place from the New Testament, you will see that they are intended for the very purpose of that joy that comes from people united together to glorify God as the church. So do not run from God's good design for relationships. Embrace it. And when you do, also see how formal church membership, thirdly this morning, helpfully illustrates God's beautiful perspective of his people. It's the third reason why this is so powerful. It's because there is a wonderful array of imagery throughout the New Testament that helps us understand the essential nature of the Christian community, the church. And there's a lot that we could highlight, but I've chosen three particularly for us to focus on this morning that show the essential relationship we share with each other. The first is that the, the, the church is described as a, a body with, with many parts, many members, each necessary for the proper functioning, according to 1 Corinthians 12. As Tyson alluded to earlier, we all have different gifts and talents, abilities, likings, passions that are used for the contributions within these local assemblies. This illustration of the body shows great unity because it's one body and yet great diversity. 
because everybody has their different role, their different function, their different thing that they contribute to the whole. One of the popular songs in the Ganusi household right now is the song Head, Shoulders, Knees, and Toes. Knees and Toes. Yeah, I'm just going to You see, we have a two-year-old who's learning different parts of the body, different words, understanding how these different things work together, the the role that they have, what they do for the the body. And we understand that eyes and ears and feet and hands, all these different things contribute to the whole. To say then that you do not need commitment to the church is like a body saying that it is perfectly fine without one of these essential parts. It does not work that way. And so we as a body work together for the good of one another and the good of the whole. But we also see in the New Testament that the church is described as a family, as a a household. That we are now brothers and sisters in Christ. Though I don't have any brothers and sisters biologically in this room, I have dozens upon dozens of brothers and sisters in Christ. Spiritual fathers and mothers in this very room. There's a, a certain love and an affection that comes when you understand that this redeemed community is part of your family. In many ways, you share more in common with them than you do with any unbelieving biological family members that you might have. This is why the New Testament warnings are so strong about a lack of love for your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Because of this profound relationship that you now share with them. But finally this morning, we see that the church is also described as a flock. And in particular, local flocks like sheep. When addressing the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, Paul called for them to watch over the flock that had been entrusted to their care there in Ephesus. In his first letter, Peter calls for the elders of that Christian community to shepherd the flock of God that was among them. Not all Christians everywhere, but the flock of God that was among him. Why is that important? What benefit is that to you? That the, these uh, examples show a, a clearly identified flock that people belong to? Well, because it establishes a clear marking of where your spiritual care resides. In other words, as a pastor and as an elder of this church, I am not spiritually responsible to the souls of people over at Bethany Community or Grace Church in Morton in the way that I am called to be entrusted with the care of this particular flock. In the same way that you are committing yourselves to the spiritual care of our eldership, not the leadership at other churches. It is good and helpful that we have been given these pictures of the church because in them we are reminded of the essential bond that we must share with a local assembly of believers. And that's a good thing. And that is something that all of us should desire this morning. And that is exactly where we're going over these next few months. We're going to walk through each of these eight membership commitments that our leaders have attempted to summarize in this Frail and imperfect document. 
Each sermon is going to dive into the New Testament teaching on that particular subject, on that particular commitment. And to be clear, the purpose is not to convince you that that commitment exists, but that that commitment is good and right and has been established for your spiritual care. And for your greatest spiritual joy. In other words, I want you to go into each sermon in the next few months with a couple questions on your mind. Questions like, why should I be excited about this particular idea? How is this supposed to be good for me? What am I missing out on if I don't commit to this? Even more importantly, how does this commitment strengthen the local body of Christ here at Newcastle Bible Church? In closing, I just want to share my pastoral hopes for this series. The series is not meant to in any way be a guilt trip for those who are not members. Certainly not a guilt trip for even those of you who are members as if we feel like you're not committed to this church. And also, likewise, this is not a a ploy to get more people to become members, twisting your arm just so we raise our membership numbers. Because remember, you're entrusting yourselves to our care. So the more souls that commit to that, the more that is on our leaders to watch over. That's a scary thing, if I could just be perfectly honest. No, my desire is that we as a church would grow in our united understanding of what strengthens the church of God. For our existing members, my hope is that this encourages your heart, that you are refreshed and renewed in your zeal and your passion for the church. It just strengthens your love. In fact, if you look at that membership commitment document, if that's something that you want to even just reaffirm your commitment to, we ask any of the new members to sign off on those commitments, we would invite you to do that. You can do that at any point in these next eight weeks if you're like, yes, this is what I want. This is what I desire. This is what I committed to here at this church. You can do that and turn that into us. And that would be a huge encouragement even to us. But for those of you who are still non-members, My goal and our goal in this series is to convince you that church membership is for you. Over the next eight weeks, we hope to show you the value and the joy that comes from a formalized commitment to a local church assembly. In other words, we want you to see that, we want you to see what you're missing out on. And create in you a hunger and a desire for stronger Christian community. A desire that says, I want that. I need that. I truly believe that if we are humble and teachable over the next few months, the Lord can and will do amazing things to help strengthen this local assembly of believers here at Newcastle Bible Church. So would you pray with me to that end? Let's do that. Father, as we close here now this morning, we do indeed just want to pray that you would glorify your name through your church. Lord, this is a local extension of this bride of Christ, the bride that you laid down your life 
for the bride that you are seeking to sanctify and to purify and to use now as a vehicle for the great commission to make your glories known in all the earth. That is a tall order for us, Lord. We are a community of believers, but we are also a community of sinners, of imperfect people who have been united by faith in Jesus. And so we need your help. We understand that relationships are hard. Relationships are fragile. And commitment is a challenge. But we also see, Lord, and we want to believe that it is for our greatest spiritual joy and for your greatest glory that we would be devoted to one another. So would you help us as we study over these next few weeks to open our hearts to these teachings, to make the appropriate adjustments where necessary, Lord, to be able to render to you the life of worship that you so desire and are so worthy of because of all that you have done for us. Would you do that, we pray, for the glory of your name. Amen.